This is a HeadGum Podcast. Craig, this week's sponsor's motto should be little websites everywhere because it's Squarespace. Squarespace is the website that helps you make websites. They help you sell stuff online, market your brand, do whatever it is that you need to do on the World Wide Web. And they do this by helping you claim a domain. They give you analytics that you can use to see who's seeing you. And their websites all have award-winning designs world-class engineering, beautiful templates, powerful e-commerce tools, and so much more, including 24-7 award-winning customer support, nothing to patch or upgrade ever. Craig, if you want to make a good website about any old thing on the face of the earth with Squarespace, go to squarespace.com overdue for a free trial when you're ready to launch. Use the offer code overdue. Save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com overdue. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code OVERDUE, save 10%. Squarespace is websites everywhere. Welcome over to It's a Podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. I'm Andrew. Whoa. Definitive. De- declarative. I'm, the I feel down. like being firm and and in charge of this situation Can you today. feel the ground beneath your feet? I'm shook. Mm-hmm. Andrew's here. I thought you were Craig. Hey, tell him what we do. We Craig. are a podcast about books where each week mm-hmm. one of us reads a book, tells the other person about it. Usually it's a book we haven't read before. And oftentimes, it's at least a book you've heard of. So, this week, I read Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng, which I had definitely heard of because when that book launched, it was literally everywhere. (laughs) It was... (laughs) Well, because she, Celeste Ng, there are many things about her that we can talk about, but the two novels that she's written, uh, so Little Fires Everywhere in 2016 and then in 2014, Everything I Never Told You... Yeah, have sold like gangbusters, whatever uh-huh. gangbusters are. Whatever, I've never like thought about cakes. it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is from a BuzzFeed interview in 2020. Uh, quote, according to BookScan da- data, everything I never told you released in 2014 has sold 67,000 units in hardcover and 475,000 in paperback. Little fires everywhere uh, has sold nearly 500,000 in hardcover and 410,000 in paperback. Uh, and if you're not in the book industry, let me make it clear. Those are astonishing sales numbers. So she's a, uh, she's a hit maker. She's a bit of Celeste a hit maker. Ng. Yeah. And but, based on the way that her first novel did, yeah, the second one was going to get the full advertising blitz treatment. I just remember in the year, probably like of its launch and the year after, I go to a lot of bookstores around the holidays. There are a lot of people in my life for whom books are a good gift. And I would just see this thing on end caps everywhere. Mm-hmm. Little end caps Little end everywhere. Caps. I can't keep doing this. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was just one of those books that was like, okay, it was kind of omnipresent. And then, duh, it's being made into a television show on a streaming service called Hulu. It has 
been made yes already into yeah i'm street, uh, working through my service. relationship okay. we're still with in the, the past work. yeah we, yeah yeah um what i didn't realize working backwards from reading about that tv show a little bit was that even before it was published reese witherspoon knew about it and like she knows it, everything well she yeah true uh, and she put it in Reese's Book Club, which is like a big deal that I didn't know about. Not to be confused with the book club that the candy company runs also. The Reese's sure. Book Club. Yes, where you read books and you get Reese's Cups. Mm-hmm. Yes. Where um, you act like you're going to read a book, but really it's hollowed out and there's peanut butter cups in there. Sure, yeah. Um, and so it kind of like was perfectly poised on the back of the success of her first book to then get picked up and like in book clubs everywhere it felt like this book was mm-hmm. being discussed. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll talk about that a little bit later after we take a break. Andrew, what should we know about Celestine? Uh, we should know she was born in 1980. She's an American novelist and essayist. We already talked about her two novels. Uh, she grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which, you know, we won't fault her for being at the wrong end of the state. Hey, I do like <laughs> Pittsburgh. It's fine. It's fine. It's no Philadelphia. Well, that's true. It's no Philadelphia. Go birds. Um, and, she, and then she also <laughs> grew up in Shaker Heights, Ohio, which I, I gather we'll talk a little bit more about because it's the town where this book is set. Yeah. Um, she graduated from Harvard, earned an MFA from the University of Michigan. And uh, she's received a National Endowments for the Arts. She's received fellowships. One, the National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship. The other, the Guggenheim Fellowship. And then both of the books, as we talked about, have been number one New York Times bestsellers. Sure. Uh, And then, I just I don't know, fun tidbit. She has said that her favorite childhood book was Harriet the Spy, which we Mm. should find a way to get on the show. I've read it. I don't know if you have. No, but, I've uh, actually put it on a list of things I might want to read for the show yeah, at some okay. point. We, so. Yeah, we'll figure we can figure that out. Yeah. Um Yeah, so that that those are the basics. <laughs> that's Do your, you want to talk about that's your fun fact? That's my fun fact. Um <laughs> she uh, she has tried to use her success to lift up other uh, authors of color and and mm. women of color who are trying to make it in the book business. Yeah. Um She's got this quote from this this New York Times interview that she did. Um, One of my longstanding irritations with the way that we view the world is like, who's going to be the next Amy Tan? Like there can be only one and you can only get there by dethroning the person who's at the top. Yeah. I definitely don't want to be the single story of the young Asian American woman writer. Uh, She added there are lots of other Asian women, even Chinese American women who are doing all kinds of stuff that I'm not doing. And she is apparently very free with book blurbs to new authors too. Like she will, she's in a a couple of writing groups and and she will get early copies of of people's stuff. And and she's a prodigious blurber is what I've gathered. That that doesn't sound like the compliment that it is, but it is is a compliment. I would love to be a prodigious and a prestigious blurber. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Maybe one day. Maybe one yeah. of these days. Do you have any opinions uh, about Shaker Heights, Andrew? Is that a place I you're mean, familiar I with? I don't know of Shaker Heights really. It's a it's a suburb of Cleveland, relatively yeah. affluent. Um I did 
read that it's home of the oldest house in Cuyahoga County. Whoa. It was b- built in 1817. I'm enough of an Ohioan still that I know how to pronounce Cuyahoga <laughs> without having to <laughs> look it up. Sure. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's weird place by uh, Ng's own admission. Uh-huh. Um, I've got that it's known for its stringent building codes and zoning laws. Um, I know that it's it, it prides itself on being relatively successful when it comes to uh, like integration of communities and schools like back in the in the 50s and 60s. And, and they still put that sort of thing uh, front and center today. Like the city website has a section where they talk about how they're forming a DEI committee and they're still accepting like applicants for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ng noted in an interview that uh, duplex homes are made to look like single family units from the front to reduce the stigma of renting, which is interesting. Um, and there's some website called niche that I found. That's yeah. all about, that's all about burbs and, it was ranked the 12th best suburb in the U.S. in 2019. Okay. Um, Ng says, uh, the houses are beautiful and the schools are excellent. He walked under a canopy of green. Um, it wasn't until she went to university that she realized it wasn't typical at all. And f- it is, in fact, a highly unusual plan community built more than 100 years ago as a garden suburb, a utopia enforced by strict rules. Uh, residents are fined for not mowing their lawn. City conducts annual house inspections inside and out. Um, every house has to be individually designed by an architect. Yeah. And on garbage day, you can't put your trash out front as it's too unsightly. This is a mix of quotes from Ng directly and then mm. from the Guardian piece that she's being quoted sure. in. Yeah, and um, she she says a lot of these similar things in other interviews as well as in the reader's guide at the back of my edition of the book, which has a letter from her that uses some of the same lines about like it being... Uh, this utopian planned community, one of the first planned communities in the United States, originally apparently built on Shaker land, and Shakers are forms of Quakers, and it was very utopian in its ideals. And mm-hmm. um, but the book is really about like it's got this cool, it's not quite a Peyton Place situation in its like. The, the seedy underbelly of this it's community not the most in everyone's bedroom story yeah. of a generation or it whatever is, it is, is supposed to be. No, it's not doing that, but it is doing the, I'm going to set this in a specific place that has a very specific personality. And then I'm going to put a bunch of characters in a cocktail shaker and mix it all up. And then there's going to be one big plot event that they all react to. Sure. Um, to kind of, to kind of like, you know, blow up what the town tells itself it is in some spots. Yeah, because my as I, I gathered from reading about the the Hulu show, which I haven't seen, but was pretty well reviewed. Um and then also interviews with Ing, uh, she says this is more from the same Guardian piece. Um, I took it for granted that race was a big topic of conversation. Uh, everybody was made aware of it. Financial assistance was given to black families to move into white neighborhoods and vice versa. School children had racial sensitivity training in which they learned about the dynamics of prejudice. Um, uh, the city, with its rule-oriented, wholesome progressivism, had a strong sense of its own virtue and purpose. Um, Elena Richardson in the, is, in this sense, the human embodiment of Shaker Heights. Yeah. So, yeah, a, a place that is that is 
trying and is in in many ways doing the work, but also like we all do has its own blind spots that it it is not always able to overcome. Yeah. And one of the blind spots may in fact be caused by this like sense that they are doing everything right. Because I, I read from Ing talking about the nineties there and maybe the nineties in America writ large is, is it's, it's very much believing in the, the, like the colorblind myth yeah. like, mm-hmm. where everybody should be equal. And so that means that nobody gets treated differently ever, which is kind of not the, the reality of race relations like then or then or now. Um, so yeah, curious to hear more about how the book dives into that. My understanding is that, so the, the Hulu show stars Reese Witherspoon as the well-meaning, uh, yep. white liberal wine mom and Carrie <laughs> Washington, um, as the more, um, like working class down on her luck sort of, I don't know if Down on Her Luck Down is, right. luck is I, I not how the book. book frames her, but okay. she is perceived as that way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so in the book, I don't think she's coded as any race in particular. Or she's at least definitely not black. And then in the show, obviously, Carrie Washington is black. And Ng and the, the people who worked on the show thought that that brought more dimension to some of the power dynamic exploration that the book was already doing yeah there was um there's an interview with carrie washington on npr where they were talking about this and this is the character mia we'll talk about this a little bit more as i get into the plot of the book but it's elena richardson and mia warren are the two main characters the two main moms of the book and yeah mia is not i went into it reading the book knowing that carrie washington was in the show and being like I don't think that she's explicitly naming the race of this character, but given the themes of the book and other conversations, I'm kind of surprised she hasn't just because yeah, everyone think... else is pretty clearly like white or Asian or named it. Like she's very deliberately engaging in those racial relationships. Yeah. I, I think she was to, to hear her describe it. And I forget which of the, the interviews that I read from her that, that where she talked a little bit about this, but I, I think she was sensitive to the, the like trying to write a black character as yeah. somebody mm-hmm. who wasn't black mm-hmm. herself. And so that that's part of the reason why it's not explicit in the book. And she also, as we'll get into it, she specifically didn't want to make them an Asian American family because of the crux of the plot and it would have made some like character fault lines like too neat. Um, so, yeah, but it, she seems pretty into how the show kind of expanded on the book in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. Making something. I mean, she's, she's an executive producer on yeah. it, so she's not exactly, <laughs> she's exactly like, standing back yeah. and just letting the magic happen. But, yeah, she she did seem pleased with how it built on what she the, the book had been doing already. True. All right. Let's take a quick break and then I'll tell you more about the book. Okay. Andrew. Craig. You ever heard a parent or family member tell a story and you're like, whoa, I there's a lot I don't know about that person. Yeah. But this is like someone you know and you're like, wow, I'd never heard that story before. I'm, and then on the flip side, I've got family members who are like, I have every time I have seen you for the last 15 years, I have heard some version of this story. 
Well, if you want to dig into the former, I want to introduce you to Artifact. They are the best way to capture the life story of someone you love, like a parent or grandparent. And they do this by setting them up with a professional interviewer who leads them through a conversation about chapters of their life, you know, childhood to their young adulthood, their career, anything in between. And then they edit those conversations into one-of-a-kind podcasts that you can share with family and keep for future generations to hear It could be your grandfather talking about his upbringing, your mom talking about how she moved across the country for a fresh start, relevant to today's book, or a favorite uncle dishing on what your dad was really like as a kid. Sick. Uh, Spill the tea on dad. (laughs) Act makes it easy and fun to spill the tea on dad. Uh, If you're wondering what the finished product (laughs) looks like, you can and sounds like you can go listen to some samples up on their website. They've got like annual conversations with newlyweds or little kids, friends speaking about uh, like the person who's receiving the artifact as a gift. Uh, And we've talked about this in previous episodes. We're working on one with our friends' kids, where they're going to talk about being sisters, and they're some of our favorite little pairs of sisters on the planet, so I'm very excited mm-hmm. about that. Yep. Uh, Artifact is less costly than hiring a ghostwriter for your parents' memoir, and it's less work than writing it yourself. And your kids and grandkids might actually listen to it, uh, or they'd have to wait for us to like read the memoir and do an overdue episode about it, and that's probably not going to happen. So uh, it couldn't yeah. be easier to get started with Artifact. Go to heyartifact.com, choose the type of interview you'd like to do. They make it super easy to book your interview on the website, and then the interview lasts about a half hour, and you can do it over the phone. Artifact is your shortcut to creating something that you'll keep coming back to year after year, and if you use the code OVERDUE, you'll save 40 bucks on your first purchase. Get started at heyartifact.com. Use that code OVERDUE. Tell a story, keep a story, listen to it later. Andrew, this book has a, I bet you're wondering how we all got into this mess opening. Oh, good. First, Because I, I, was, I was wondering how we got, how the character got into whatever situation you're about to tell me about. Yeah. Uh, the first line of the book. Everyone in Shaker Heights was talking about it that summer, how Isabel, the last of the Richardson children, had finally gone around the bend and burned the house down. <laughs> finally. Finally. <laughs> We've been waiting all this time. So we get this opening chapter that does a lot of like it's a it's a very efficient book overall I think and this chapter is a good example. It tells us that the Richardson house has been set on fire. All the main characters in that family are out on the lawn. Um, it references their tenants, the Warrens, who will meet. It references Izzy, their daughter, who is not on the scene and has definitely left after setting fires all over the house. Um, How what size were the fires? Would you say and like, were, I don't know. Were there just like a lot of them, like localized in one place, or were they kind of scattered throughout the house? Or well, it's funny. Funny you should ask because a few pages into the book, one of the characters uh, tells one, Lexi, one of the daughters, tells her brother, "The firemen said there were little fires everywhere." Excellent, excellent. Well, <laughs> I love a a book or show or movie. That does the thing where it says the name of the book or show or movie. I like when they just go right out of the gate with it. So I don't have to be sitting there the whole time waiting. Like, when are they going to say it? You know? (laughs) Not a late title card. Um, Also, it's clear that it was definitely not an accident. Like, someone did this on purpose. Yes, sure. Um, So we meet Mrs. Richardson, Elena, who we mentioned before the break. She's the mother. There are parts in the book where she is referred to as Elena or refers to herself as Elena, but whenever she's talking about like 
who she was as a younger woman and who she is now as this mother of four, she refers to herself as like becoming Mrs. Richardson. So there's this like, she wears it as a title and the book treats it as such. It's, it's interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, she's the only one in the house during the fires. She wakes up. She was, her daughter expected her to have been at the pool already for her Saturday morning workout. She was not. Um, there's her husband, Bill. I put with a question mark and had to go check it later. Yeah, it's Bill. <laughs> he doesn't, he's like in the book, but yeah, he, you know, he's whatever. Um, Lexi is the oldest daughter, popular, super smart, going to Yale. Trip is the jock son. He's a junior. Of course, I mean, of course he is. His name's Trip. Well, Greg. his name is is Bill Richards in the third, but everybody calls him Trip. Because everybody like, calls him Trip because of the third. Yes. No, yeah. I've seen Star Trek Enterprise. I okay. know how this works. Cool. There's uh, a character in Star Trek Enterprise named Trip. Okay, sure. The talented the talented sophomore <laughs> is uh, Moody. Which I guess is a nickname for Michael. Also, he's moody. <laughs> like he is literally like a moody teen. He's gonna ask. Yeah, I'm glad. To, uh, and to then there's Isabel, who I mentioned. She's she's not a goth kid. She's like, what if Daria, but high energy? <laughs> huh. So um, what if Daria minus the most memorable, distinctive <laughs> part of Daria's character? Yeah, sure. she's a she's a nonconformist. Who isn't like a a commercialized hot topic nonconformist? She actually okay. doesn't conform. Sure. Um, for for example, Andrew, that we get, hear an anecdote about her later. When she was eleven, they signed her up for dance class, and she didn't want to do it, so she sat on the floor every class. And then at the recital, she wrote "Not your puppet" on her forehead and just stood Whoa. there the whole time. Whoa! 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 Twisted. <laughs> she's she's the Joker. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Um. We also get a brief flashback to Mrs. Warren, no, Mrs. Richardson, watching Mia Warren and her daughter Pearl leave the night before. They were her tenants in a second property that she owned, one of those duplexes that you mentioned before the break, um, and they were dropping their keys in the mailbox before they left. Uh, Mia is an artiste. She's a photographer. She is like you said. We said that she's not down on her luck. She is, like, not rich. She's not Mm well-to-do. She is, with her daughter, lived a very itinerant, nomadic lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And they have moved all over the country. And the big thing with this book is that Pearl has finally been told that, like, okay, we're going to stay here. We're going to actually live in this community for the rest of your time in high school. And then it doesn't work out that way. Well, it doesn't. No, because they definitely leave in the first chapter. And so you yeah. uh hmm. You also get some references to the town gossip around Mirabelle uh or Mei Ling, uh Mirabelle McCullough or Mei Ling Chow, who is a uh I think she's like fourteen months by the time that the trial happens. It is a, is a she's a, a Chinese trial. a legal thriller. Yes, yeah, she's a Chinese girl who is very young and she has been she was given up by her mother and uh a white couple in the neighborhood uh who's been waiting a very long time to adopt a child um gets her through social services. Sure. And I'll talk a little bit later about how that becomes this like big community 
reckoning event. Um, but at this point in the book, you're like, what's up with the fires? This house is on fire. Why is this family <laughs> out on the on the lawn? Why are these little fires everywhere? Why are they everywhere? Won't somebody put them out? And like people are referencing this like trial event, but nobody or this, you know, custody battle. But like you don't actually come back to that for I think probably like another ten or twelve chapters. Um Okay. And I don't know, Andrew, if you've ever like you've been in high school, you meet someone and they're just like different than what you know and you can't get into them like i guess like that's just kind of how young love goes i mean i my high school did not different being different was not Mm. good Mm -hmm. it was not a thing that got you anywhere except (laughs) like marching band yeah, wow. Except like except exile to the the arts. <laughs> yeah. How weird how weird it was that like all the different kids ended up in one place where then are we really different at all? Think about it. Know. Seemed like Cuz if we're time. all different, aren't we all the same? It's the 90s. <laughs> <sighs> Woof. All right. Come on. Um so Mia and Pearl have moved into Shaker Heights. They are renting one of those duplexes I mentioned that. Uh, we this is how we get some of the Shaker Heights as a planned community, um, in kind of doles it out as relevant this like ethos and the way that you experience it physically as you move through the town, the way that people, um, you know, like live in different neighborhoods and you know nobody rides a bike and nobody uses public transit, everybody's got cars, so there's a lot of walking around. If you don't have those things, Moody rides mm-hmm. a bike. It's what makes one of the things that sets him apart. He also loves poetry because he's 15, I guess. You know. Um, the the thing that gets set up between the Richardsons and the Warrens initially comes through Elena as this, like, I've seen an interview where Ing says this, so I didn't, I feel fine saying it myself. She sets Elena up as a Karen. Like, okay. as a, as the stereotype of white women that we have come to know and she uses that i think ing does pretty effectively to like if you read this book and you have ever felt the ways that elena richardson does about anything you will feel like both seen and attacked in the way that (laughs) ing really wants you to yeah sure that makes sense so here's just uh Elena Richardson talking about her decision to rent this house, which whose money she doesn't really need for this rental um, Mm -hmm. to the Warrens because they did not need the money from the house. It was the kind of tenant that mattered to Mrs. Richardson. She wanted to feel that she was doing good with it. Her parents had brought her up to do good. They donated every year to the Humane Society and UNICEF and always attended local fundraisers. Once winning winning a three-foot-tall stuffed bear at the Rotary Club silent auction, Mrs. Richardson looked at the house as a form of charity. She kept the rent low. Real estate in Cleveland was cheap, but apartments in good neighborhoods like Shaker could be pricey. And she rented only to people she felt were deserving, but who had, for one reason or another, not quite gotten a fair shot in life. It pleased her to make up the difference. And it's like... That doesn't sound bad, mm-hmm. but you can just imagine how that could get complicated mm-hmm. if a particular person doesn't live up to your 
ideas of who they are, or let's say you're like Mrs. Richardson, and a little bit later in the book, you find yourself liking Mia Warren for this, like, kind of, like, I don't know, like, flouting the rules lifestyle that she has, Mm -hmm. and you find her art, her photography interesting, and you realize that she has to like take odd jobs when she can't sell her when her art isn't selling. And she's like, well, I mean, you could just like come clean my house. Yeah, I can help. I could help you. You could just I come clean my house. And I'm then the kind like, of person who helps. And then and you so here I'm helping. You won't even really be paying rent at that point. You could just like work for me. Yeah. And it wouldn't be weird at all. No, it won't be weird. It won't make our relationship problematic, and everybody will be happy, and it'll be good. It'll be good. Just do it. And Just I, do it. And and I I make the suggestion, like you know, kind of aware that your daughter has become friends with my kids, and like, wouldn't that be kind of just cool if you were just around? Why not? Yeah, our family our family should be close, and you should come and do work for me for money. Yeah. Because it, enmeshing money and like personal stuff is never gone, is never broke bad for anybody. Yes, and, and that is like it is very, and I don't say this as a, as a pejorative. Like it is deliberately cringy to like watch Mrs. Richardson come to these like decisions and escalate their relationship in a way that is clearly gonna cause problems. Mm-hmm. Um. The in the moment you can see Mia be like, this doesn't seem like a good idea. But I also know that I can't talk her out of it. But that also comes a few chapters after her daughter Pearl has like become really tight with the Richardsons very, very quickly and has come home like talking about these friends that she has and kind of talking like them a little bit. And Mia is feeling like, oh, my daughter is slipping away from me. She she has this interesting dynamic with Pearl where because they never settle anywhere, Pearl never really makes attachments to any other kids in her school. And she honestly finds it a relief to leave because she finds being an outsider so stressful anyway. And so when she comes into this town and Moody like shows up on their lawn the very first day and is like taken with Pearl mm-hmm. and decides to be her best friend and basically fall in love with her, even though she's never going to give it back to him. Um, she then like is like, oh my god, this family's cool. Like they have this giant like sitcom TV house, and they're all super nice to me. And I kind of like that guy Trip. He seems hot. And despite uh, his name, despite his name, yeah, she she <laughs> no no mention in the book that she's like on balance. He's fine despite the name. But like, oh, Trip, that's kind of pretentious. <laughs> but he seems nice anyway. <laughs> um. But so Mia like decides to move forward with this kind of housekeeper relationship a, because she knows she can't tell Miss Richardson. No, like Miss Richardson won't have it. And B, she does have a desire to be closer to her daughter. Sure. Um, Moody and Pearl have like, they go through a little bit of like showing us the tour of the town stuff. That's my, those are my favorite Pokemon generation, by the way, Pokemon Moody and Pokemon Pearl. (laughs) Those are good ones. God. <laughs> Pearl's a real one, though, right? You know, it is. That's why it's funny. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, God. I'm trying to talk about People it. at home are dying they're, laughing. They're, People yeah. at home are trying not to crash their cars into the median of a highway because they're laughing so hard. 
Yeah, you're good at this. Um, (laughs) (laughs) There is some fun class stuff that definitely resonated for me as someone who works in the theater when Moody is like learning about Mia's photography. She doesn't do just like normal, quote unquote, normal photography. She's not a portraitist at the Sears, Andrew. She (laughs) makes art (laughs) where she will take interesting images. Yes, it is the 90s. Yeah. (laughs) She will take interesting images and then she will also do a lot of like doctoring during the development, the film development process. Um, There's an example later in the book where she's like taken some photos of abandoned houses and then like carefully like cut out miniatures of her brother and her in from other photos and then like superimposed them into the image. It's all very it it's very interesting and the, I think the thing that Ing says in at least one interview is like she's interested in photography because it's this thing that's that purports to be objective and completely realistic, but mm-hmm. like by the very nature of how it is made, it is incredibly subjective. Um, where you point the lens, what you do to the film afterwards, all that kind of stuff. Sure. And Mo- Moody's like, why doesn't your mom get a real job? And <laughs> Pearl just goes, she has a job. She's the artist. Mm-hmm. Duh. Mm-hmm. Um. And it's just this, like, for him, these are people he could never in a lifetime imagine ever meeting. And now his life is defined by having met this, like, interesting girl who is kind of into poetry and into it. She is smart and she's not like his sister and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, the hanging out with the Richardsons stuff is really fun. Um, they watch a lot of Jerry Springer, Andrew. <laughs> Because it's okay. the nineties, I can get into that. What uh, do you know? What year it is specifically? I'm trying to yes. like what album is topping the charts right now. Okay, so it is. Um, so the the Richardsons take on the Warrens as tenants in June of 1997. Okay, and most of the book is the school year of 97 to 98. Okay, so probably like. I'm trying to. Th- I think my sister was in like a Hanson Spice Girls sort of, sure transition about right phase in there. I don't know if when did the like the Backstreet Boys and Instinct start walking the earth? It was I, in there somewhere. I think right? the Backstreet Boys started in Orlando in like ninety six, ninety seven, but then they didn't mm-hmm. come out. It might have been a year or two it before might have they been came slightly out here. Later, yeah, yeah, because they went to Germany first to do all their recording or mm-hmm. like Denmark, something weird, um, mm-hmm. something. And we're like, we're Smash Mouth's not quite here. Yes, that's very I important. I mean, yeah. you probably could turn on the radio in this book and hear One Week by the Bare Naked Ladies tearing up the charts. Possibly. If you wanted to. Uh, one of the few music artists I remember getting referenced is Tori Amos. There's a Dave Matthews Band reference. Oh, of course there is. Excellent. Um, oh, there's, there's a... Okay. So there's a part where... Uh, Moody is reflecting on one of the popular kids being mean to him. And he says that the popular kid nicknamed him Jake. This feels like Ing is just di- like dishing on some stuff kids did while she was in high school. <laughs> like, okay. This mm-hmm. guy, I think his name is Tim. He starts calling Moody Jake as a nickname. And he's like, well, that's kind of weird, but whatever. And then he learns that the older kids say that bad stuff is Jake. Like... Dave Matthews right. band is cool, but Brian Adams is Jake. <sighs> okay. So it sure. was like a diss. Kids are tiring. They really are exhausting. Have I told the They're the story future and the... they're exhausting. 
have I told story on the podcast about the older kid in high school who thought I looked like Brendan Fraser, so he called me Encino Man all the time? No, I don't. <laughs> and if he would come into the gym and he'd be like, "Hey, Encino Man," <laughs> what? That being Brendan Fraser's most prominent film role at the time. I think. Well, yeah, because he hadn't made the Mummy yet. Yeah, he hadn't been. He hadn't made the Mummy. I would never call you the Mummy, Andrew. No, don't. I don't call me the Mummy. Call me Encino Man, obviously. <laughs> Encino man to my friends. If anything, I don't know. You just had a really good Halloween costume early on when our time together at Kenyon College, and you were uh, Neo. I was Neo from the Matrix. It was a very good costume. The same year that you were the hamburger hamburger from (laughs) the McDonald's hamburger advertisements. The two friends. Um, (laughs) The two friends. (laughs) Other '90s references. So, like the Jerry Springer thing is an interesting tidbit because it, it shows us some of the kids. That's actually where we get some of the first references to this. We don't see race and Shaker Height stuff where the kids are like, I think Lexi is like watching an episode of Jerry Springer where people are, you know, getting into some debate about. So any episode of Jerry yeah, Springer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Where he's playing up race relations for the equivalent of cliques in the 90s. And... uh Moody's Nielsen like, box <laughs> Nielsen readings, clicks. I guess. You got to get those Nielsen families clicking. So we get some of that through those conversations. We also get a little bit of the kids asking Pearl like why she doesn't know who her dad is um, because she has no knowledge of her family other than her mom, Mia. Um, but I was just struck by Springer as just such a potent, like, I don't know, token of the 90s, of like a emblematic of the 90s. Um, he was certainly at the peak of his influence, yeah? Yes. Some other some other things that I noted as just being particularly 90s. Like, there's references to Delia's Gap and Express at the mall. Now, Gap and Express are still around. I think Delia's is as well, but... I don't know. But going to any of these places at the mall is extremely nice. Yes. Uh, they're talking if you're about, anywhere but, like, New Jersey, <laughs> where malls still exist and thrive, apparently. They, t- they talk about putting tapes in VCRs. Uh, they talk about going to a friend's house to play some Goldeneye. Okay. Yeah. Like with the correct inner caps to the name of the. I was impressed. Right. You know? Yeah. Well, it's a, an N64 over PlayStation, obviously. obviously. This book's got this book's got taste. Obviously. Um, I mentioned the Tori Amos reference. Um, at one point, Elena Richardson, who is a reporter for the local news, a big part of her backstory is that she like had a career where she thought she was going to go into journalism. And like, I think her big initial wish was that she'd get hired for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Sure. And she starts a family and kind of settles down into Shaker Heights and, and never graduates beyond whatever the Shaker Heights paper is. Uh, mm-hmm. At one point, she puts aside a draft for an article that says, should Gore run for president, locals weigh in. I mean, the fact that there is a paper t- local, like more local than the Cleveland Plain Dealer <laughs> to the wider Cleveland area is also a 90s thing at uh-huh. this point. Uh-huh. I just thought, I just appreciated the, you know, Ohio voters mattering all the way back See, in the 1990s. If you're doing this uh, this in now times, it's like she's trying to get the big gig at the Sinclair station, but oh she God. is uncomfortable with some of the propaganda that's being. Yes. She won't do those reports. About, yeah. Yeah. Um, there is a section in the book where the teens start having sex, Andrew. Yeah. Nice. 
Um, it's one I of. Sp- it's- <laughs> <laughs> I'm just putting my. I put. I you. I am in the shoes of a teen. We've been talking about the '90s. I'm just thinking about how it would have. I would have reacted in the '90s. It's one of I would say like the three primary like plot threads is um, Lexi winds up having sex and does get pregnant and Uh-oh. does have an abortion. Okay. Um, she has to keep it secret, and Mia and Pearl get involved, and and things like that. Um, like Pearl helps take her to the clinic, and Lexi actually uses Pearl's name on the form because she's Lexi, and it's a mix uh-huh. of hiding her tracks and probably also being scared in the moment. Um, little later on in the book, Pearl, or might have been just before actually, Pearl and Trip start having a bit of a tryst, a tryst with Trip. And obviously this is sad news for Moody eventually when that comes to light because it's secret for several chapters. The Mm -hmm. intro into the teens having sex portion of the book is that all anyone could talk about is the Bill Clinton sex scandal. (laughs) Of course. It was all over the, the... The local news outlets that were still around. All the teens are like making jokes about Oval Office cigars and like just stupid nonsense. I honestly don't remember what my like how much of that I ingested as a. I don't remember either, except I do know that I must have ingested a lot of it. (laughs) Yeah. Because it was everywhere. Well, because I do remember. Dad, I think watching like impeachment proceedings mm-hmm. on the on the TV definitely, um, and a- yeah, I think I think we all m- came away with a a set narrative and like a way that that story went down and who the heroes and villains were that has that we all collectively have had to re-examine yeah. as we've gotten more time and like distance from it. And then the other big like 90s thing that factors into this book is uh, Chinese adoption, which I didn't know until I was doing, I didn't know that it like formally started in 1991. Oh no, I didn't know that either. Um, and I think it peaked like maybe 10 years ago. I don't know the exact dates, but there is like a there was like a peak of how many the Chinese government was allowing to the United States and then it started to decline. Mm-hmm. Um but so this taking place in 97 98 uh it's a few years into that going on and that is not the the way that this adoption happens in the book, but I think it's like cult- the way that some of the characters talk about it culturally and certainly reading it as someone who grew up in the 90s i was kind of like oh okay yes that's where we were as a country and yeah. like i remember 90, 90s kids will love this one like learning about the one child policy and and stuff like that and it's yeah like, right okay um and but also having like no sense of the nuance of those situations which is what this book is all about mm-hmm. um so a big structural thing that this book does neither the richardsons nor the warrens are directly involved in this custody case um so they are they are involved in it like 
either professionally or personally with the people involved, but they themselves, like, neither family is, like, one side of the case. I just want to make that clear. Because I think Mm -hmm. that it does some things that Ng wants the book to do, but I think it is also opened... I did read, like, a review in the Washington Post, I think by Nicole Lee, who, by focusing on these two families rather than the couple of Asian or Asian American characters in the book with a more deeper like reading or a writing of those characters, it does kind of push them to the margins in a, even though it is using the transracial adoption plot point to like blow up the lives of the other characters in the book. And I think you can, I found it worked personally, but I can also see how it would not work for folks. Um, So, Bibi Chow, who works at the, I think at the Chinese food restaurant with Mia, when Mia does shifts there, uh, gave up her daughter and, like, left her at a fire station because she was, like, incredibly down on her luck following her pregnancy. The father just left and went back to China. She has no community in Shaker Heights. She lost her job while she was pregnant. Um, and then clearly was having some sort of like postpartum episode after the birth, gives up the baby. Um, We don't find out about that until after we meet the McCulloughs, this very nice couple, quote unquote. Um, They're they're nice people. The book, the book, they seem fine. The book paints them as (laughs) nice meaning people um, who are friends of the Richardsons, her, uh, the mother and Elena go way back. And they'd been trying for easily over a decade to have a kid, multiple Mm -hmm. attempts, never worked out very heart-wrenching it's depicted very you know movingly um and all of a sudden they get a call it like in the morning that there's a baby available and they get it that afternoon and they are just like oh my god um and then because bb is friends with mia mia learns about uh the daughter being uh, in the custody of the mccullough's and kind of nudges BB to do something about it mm-hmm. because of Mia's own history uh, and her belief of like a mother shouldn't be separated from her child. Uh, and so th- that becomes this like litmus test for everyone's politics in a town where everyone thought they all had the same politics. Like yeah, that's sure. the big tension. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it, uh, like, that part of the book comes to a head with the, like, you know, the, the legal proceedings themselves, which have this, like, kind of back and forth of the facts that the McCulloughs are putting forward and the, the facts that, uh, BB is putting forward and her experience Mm -hmm. of it. And neither are false, right? Like, it's like stuff like the, the baby when it was found, um, had like really intense diaper rash and had clearly been somewhat malnourished. And like you then get the, in the next paragraph, BB's perspective of uh, her milk wasn't coming in. She had no money for food. She was like washing the diapers by hand and then reusing them and yada, yada, mm-hmm. yada. It's, and it's this very powerful chapter, I think, um, that has then immediately followed up with Mc- Ms. McCullough on the witness stand uh, with BB's lawyer being like, uh, 
what are you doing to like are you prepared to introduce her to Chinese culture and like how are you going to help her learn about her heritage and she's like well we do love that Chinese food restaurant and we are going to put some more Asian art on the walls and it's just really condemning Mm -hmm. of them um to the point where I honestly, and I, I won't, I was honestly impressed that I couldn't tell which way Ing was going to go with it in terms of who gets custody of the kid by the end of the book. Mm-hmm. Because either option seemed like it was still going to cause a lot of stuff to go down. Mm-hmm. Everything was like a tinderbox. Um, and that that, it is interesting to me that she does not, make either of the main families like okay so mr richardson is a lawyer for the mccullers and mia is like clearly personally invested in bb um and elena spends the entire middle of the book doing some journalistic sleuthing stuff because you can't believe that mia would ruin her best friend's life um and like learns everything about mia's mysterious backstory um and how she had Pearl and all this stuff that is set off by this trial. But it is not, the trial is not like the focus of any of those characters' lives. This is sure. an interesting way to tackle that issue. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if, mm-hmm. I don't think, I can't think of a corollary to to the way that this book is is approaching like a political topic with pretty nuanced views on on both sides. And I don't mean that. Like, I mean that literally, like she is doing a pretty good job of of illuminating the arguments for both sides of this. Well, because I I think there there would have been less of a of a an established like media propaganda machine making sure that. Mm, sure. People got split down the middle, believing the same things about everything. And, and I don't think Ohio in particular is definitely like emphatically conservative but it's also kind of weird about it in in a way that is maybe just because i have more uh firsthand experience talking with with people but i find that it is it is hard to pin Mm. folks down a lot of the time and and they they like many of us are just like being served poorly by a two-party system (laughs) Sure, sure but like i do think maybe there is a little bit more room and I'm speaking from outside my own experience because I didn't know enough about politics to have like political opinions in the 1990s. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, maybe maybe a little easier to to figure out what you think about something without being able to get brainwashed on Facebook about it, for yeah. example, or like find other like communities of of people who like all feed on each other's anxieties and insecurities and and. Yeah, you know, you know what I mean. Yeah, you know totally, what I'm saying. totally, and yeah. and it is not um, the book. I did like. There's see, no Facebook group you can go to to talk about this case with people and have yes. everybody like group think their way into to feeling one way or the other about sure. it. Sure, and th- there is depiction of like local news gets involved, and there are media stories that like paint uh, BB as like really unfit for motherhood and some that like really try to pull at the heartstrings and say she should get her daughter back. Um, but it is certainly not the, it is, it does not, 
I don't know, Ng is aware that it is about a larger issue, but in the text of the book, the characters are like, they're not going and reading national news and then like bringing it into this conversation in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's also stuff in the, you mentioned the like, you can't just go join a Facebook group about it. This is also one of those stories and i think ing has said this in interviews where like it wouldn't work after the internet in the same way because there's a lot of like hunting down of people's previous identities <laughs> and parts of their mm-hmm. lives that just is very pre google or pre you know readily available internet browsing there's a lot more gumshoe work that elena does to find out everything about mia in the book mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and she has said that like there are mysteries and ways that information unfolds that you just like can't do. You have to account for differently when Yeah. In the same way that like it was interesting to read a teen a book about teens where like they f- they leave each other notes and like fret about not being able to get in touch with each other when someone doesn't show up to something. Sure. Like I think some of the kids have pagers, Andrew. <laughs> but like that's the most do any of them i the 90s might be pre-aim almost or at least this part of the 90s might be well do they mm. does anybody aol instant messenger each other in this book i feel like this is this is where it that would have been becoming more common but maybe you couldn't assume that everybody would have the internet in their house yet yeah nobody has the internet in their house at least depicted in the book Okay, because, yeah, like, mid to late 90s is definitely when that started to get picked up, and, and yeah. It was a big part yeah. of my high school experience in the first few years of the aughts, but... Oh, definitely. It was certainly not a thing for these characters. Um, mm-hmm. And it, something that I've... In, in talking about the adoption case, I've kind of skipped over the big mystery of the book around Mia and Pearl. Um, they find a photograph at the art museum on a field trip that was taken by a famous photographer that is very clearly a younger Mia and a baby Pearl. And Pearl Mm -hmm. and the other Richardson kids are like, what the heck is this? And over the course of the novel, you learn that Mia has been very deliberately concealing parts of her life from people, has kind of, in in the opposite way of Elena settling down in Shaker Heights rather than going off and being... She is described as someone, Elena, as like she votes and donates Democrat, but she doesn't march and doesn't, you know, she has the values, but she doesn't enact them kind of thing. Sure. Mm -hmm. And Mia is someone who is like really trying to actively live those values rather than face anything that she has done. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's a like whole section in the middle of the book that is the result of Elena's kind of sleuthing that is like a short story about Mia and how she fell in love with photography, how she went to art school despite her parents not wanting her to, um, how her brother, her relationship with her brother who then passed away, and this like kind of, I don't know, it does feel a little out there. So this is the thing, Andrew, and this is where Pearl comes from. A man on a subway is like, hey, girl in college, you look like my wife. And me and my wife can't have a baby. And we've been looking mm. for someone to help us have a baby. 
Can you, would you like to rent your room womb out? To would us, you please? like to rent a womb to us? For Could we get a womb with a view for our child for ten please. G's in nineteen eighty mm-hmm. something? Um, and that does not go as planned, and ultimately, Mia leaves with Pearl and does not give her to that family, um, and it causes a break with her family. And so, like, that becomes this big backstory that Elena can weaponize against her in the in the end of the book. And, like, everything after the trial is all of these little character beats. Trip and Pearl, Moody being in love with Pearl, Izzy being this... Izzy has fallen in love with Mia as an artist mom who actually listens to her and doesn't treat her like a jerk. Um, and Lexi's whole deal, like all of that comes home to roost in the, like the last 10 to eh, 10 to 15% of the book. Um, where it's not like every question is answered. It's not like everybody learns everything, Mm -hmm. but it is sort of like a little like clock work thing clicking into place, um, where people get their comeuppances and, and things kind of dominoes fall and whatnot. Okay. I, found it, I found it satisfying. Yeah, sure. Um, I would be interested to hear from listeners who have either read or read and seen the series and like what their response is. Um, Cause it does seem like they gave Izzy a little bit more to do. It seems like they, Mia is like for someone who causes so much change in the book and like, Every time she interacts with someone and kind of has a, a ch- uh, like an effect on them, Ing does use like language of like ig- igniting and like smoke is in the air and like pe- she is setting little fires in people is really what's happening everywhere everywhere, um, and to do that, Ing kind of has to keep her a little keep her mysterious and keep her a little reserved, which means she is not the same mover and driver of the story as like Pearl and Elena and Moody are, um, mm-hmm. which then if you're going to make a TV show where you're like, yo, it's Carrie Washington versus Reese Witherspoon, whoever wins, we win kind of mm-hmm. program. <laughs> um, I imagine you have to pump up Mia a little bit, uh, but given the structure of the novel, she kind of has to take a backseat to Elena uh, at least in my recollection of like it the her mental footprint on me is smaller than elena's um yeah which is i don't know it is what it is mm-hmm. um anything else that you found about the book that you want to make sure i talk about andrew no i think we're good i think i'm good i want to make sure we get our 90s kids stuff in I, th- I mean, fun. I think across the body of work that we have produced over the course of the last eight years that we've done plenty of that and that we don't need to like wallow in it. No, but I feel like it was fun to read a book that's actively set in that era. We don't do that too often. Sure. Yeah. I mean, as the 90s becomes continues to become like a period setting for it's various creative projects we're gonna run into that more and yes. more but yes. uh I, yeah i don't know like 
Uh, where's the, no, that's the eighties is where's the beef. What's a good play it loud. What's a good night. What are some good nineties ad slogans? Bud wise. Oh yeah. That one's a good one. Was that? Yeah. Is that late nineties? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Probably. You've got mail. (laughs) 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 Remember just being inundated with America online CDs. That was a thing. And you're like, I will put this, I will put this shiny disc into my computer. Yeah, minutes. And it, I will, it will make the horrible modem noise at me, and then I will be connected to the World Wide Web, and I will go to Nintendo.com and look up if Ocarina of Time is out yet. Yeah. Oh, it's not? Okay. <laughs> okay. Turn the computer off. There's nothing else okay. to do on this computer. Shut it down. And remember, you got to <laughs> shut it down, and then it will tell you it's safe to turn it off, and then you can turn it off. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine you click on your computer this little button that says shut down and then your computer like can't do the rest of it itself like it that was a feature that got added to computers at some point was to actually shut themselves all the way down after you hit shut down huh do you not remember that like black and beige screen that said is now safe to turn off your computer in oh the, you're right like, the, yes like windows 95 uh-huh. yeah mm-hmm. yeah we had to invent computers that could do, that could do it all the way. Huh. Wild times, man. Wild so times. is that are you good now? Are we did we yeah. 90s enough? Okay. I'm good now. Wait, can I do like a boom bling bing bing bing? That's a Windows 95 startup noise. Oh, bling bling bling. Yeah. Yeah, that one. I didn't talk enough about I have a bunch of notes that I'm not going to read about how Ing does a really good job where like every character is an iceberg. They have like one thing about them that they do a thing, and then you get like two really great paragraphs about what's actually motivating what they are. She's sure. really good at that. Anyway, ogres are like icebergs. <laughs> yes, it's exactly that. Mm-hmm. That's I mean that's a two thousands property, but it's close enough. It feels of the nineties though. Yeah, in the way in the way that nineteen ninety two feels like the eighties. Um, yes. Thanks yeah, for yeah. listening. Little emails everywhere. Go into our inbox at overduepod at gmail Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter at OverduePod. Thanks to Brenda, Robin, Aaron, Adrian, Roxy, Adam, Lee, Kelly, Maria, Mike, Amity, many more for reaching out to us in the past week. Thanks to Nick Larandis, who composed our theme song. Andrew, folks want to know more about the show, where do they go? They can go to OverduePodcast.com. It's our internet website. Up there we have links to the books that we have read and the ones that we are going to read. We have links to Apple and Google and our RSS feed that you can subscribe to the show and get new episodes when they come out, including bonus episodes. Uh, what else? Patreon.com slash Overdue Pod. Uh, little donations everywhere, please. Thank you. Uh, next week, I will be reading The Public Burning by Robert Coover. Yeah. Think about that. Another period of American history we will cover. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and more fire, more burning. Huh. Huh. Didn't plan that. Weird theme theme month. Um, There was some burning and more murder on the Orient Express, too, when they tried to burn evidence. So, but Poirot, then Poirot found it. Huh. He's like, they didn't want me to find this evidence because they tried to destroy it. All the evidence that they dropped and they wrote evidence on it in Sharpie. That was the fake evidence that they wanted me to find. Anyway, still thinking about Poirot. Okay. Uh, Are we good? Yeah, we're good. Okay, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. And until we talk to you next week and you're like, it's been one week since I heard this podcast. 
try to be happy. 90s. That was a HeadGum Podcast. All right, let's take a quick break, and then I'll tell you more about the book. Okay. <laughs> tell you what <laughs> I don't know what words I said. I got sucked up into a vacuum. <laughs>